Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Scott Wurzbacher. Last year on episode 17, my family shared our story of backpacking and camping in northern Minnesota, a trip that was pivotal for us and played a major role in the creation of this podcast. What we didn't share on that episode was our experience learning about an incredible Minnesota adventurer named Dorothy Moulter. When we were backpacking, we met a fellow hiker and told him that our next stop was Ely, Minnesota and the Boundary Waters canoe area. Seeing my kids with me, he asked if we liked root beer. Well, duh, who doesn't? He then said that when we got to Ely, we had to go see the root beer lady, a well-known local who lived alone in the wilderness of the Boundary Waters serving root beer to travelers who passed through. Sadly, it turns out that Dorothy passed away in 1986, but her story lives on. And today, I have with me Jess Edberg, the executive director of the Dorothy Moulter Museum in Ely, Minnesota, and she has graciously agreed to share Dorothy's incredible story with us. Jess has been with the museum since 2014 and is quite an adventurer herself. I'm so excited to have her here with us today to tell the story of Dorothy Moulter. Jess, welcome to the campfire. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you. Oh, I'm so I'm so excited to share this story. It was such a highlight of our trip to learn about this incredible woman. And um, and this is something that you get to to spend your whole days and weeks and months um, just educating people on. It's so cool. I'm thinking that for listeners um, that might not be familiar with the Boundary Waters, that maybe we should just start there. If you could kind of fill us in a little bit on, for listeners that aren't familiar, uh, what is the Boundary Waters and, and, and what goes on there? Sure. So you make my job sound really glamorous and exciting. Um, and most of the time it's not as, as exciting as it sounds. Um, so here in Ely, we're a, a border town along the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. And um, that particular space is a federally designated public lands area. And its designation as a wilderness means that no private um, residents can live there. Now, there are um, special rules surrounding indigenous cultures and tribal use of the landscape. But for the majority of us American citizens here, um, we can't live in the Boundary Waters. We can recreate in and then leave it. So it's um, it's quite large. Um, I don't have the number off the top of my head. And so I was quick looking online to see um, just under or just over a million acres in space. Um, and it's adjoining to Voyagers National Park. And Voyagers um, mm -hmm. has different rules, different uh, um, guidelines for the use of the landscape. But the Boundary Waters, the really unique thing is one that it's it limits motor use. 
So the sounds that you hear when you're within the boundary waters are typically natural sounds. It's rare other than human voices to hear man-made sounds, um, the occasional plane flying far overhead. Um, and travel is primarily by watercraft. Uh, so in the summer season, which is the busy season, it's um, canoe travel primarily. There are some kayakers. I saw a paddleboarder in there this past summer. <laughs> um, but canoe, usually a tandem canoe, is the primary mode of transportation. And in the wintertime, it also has to, to be non-motorized. And so snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, and um, the most efficient would be dog sledding. Um, are the ways that you can travel and recreate within the Boundary Waters area, um, the canoe wilderness there. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely breathtaking. I mean, our experience there, we, we, uh, we canoed in and um, that, that area, Minnesota is known as the land of a thousand lakes, right? And the Boundary 10, Waters is... Uh, <laughs> 10,000 lakes. That's right. Oh, I'm, I'm off by a factor. And the land of 10,000 lakes. That's right. <laughs> and, and it, I mean, and it's so, so, so beautiful. And um, we just had, but it truly is wilderness. And when you talk about the yes. sounds, I remember hearing the wolves and I remember hearing the loons mm -hmm. and I mean, boy, it, it was, just, it's just breathtaking. And I had never been that deep in the wilderness, just completely on our own before it was, it was truly breathtaking. So, um, and massive, like you said, yes. So, so with that kind of picture, so let's go into this incredible person. So, so who is Dorothy Malter? Yeah. So for, she was a lot of things, but to boil it down, Dorothy Malter was the last legal non-Indigenous resident living within the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. And she was well known for um, several different things. Most people know her or recognize her story through her root beer um, history. She did make homemade root beer up there and offer it to guests and passerby. She was also a nurse, a trained nurse, who offered medical care to canoeists um, or other folks in the Boundary Waters that um, you know found themselves in a tight spot. And she also was a very um, independent woman, often um, viewed as someone kind of ahead of her time in terms of gender roles in our society. Um, but the root beer lady is probably her most well-known title that she holds to this day. Yeah. And, and so to give people some, some context, I mean, like how far into the wilderness did she reside? And, you know, I guess how, how where is the nearest town and supplies and, and, and how did all that work? Sure. So Dorothy lived approximately 15 miles from the nearest road okay. and the, the nearest road or landing that's accessible by any kind of vehicle traffic is Moose Lake. So the Moose Lake public landing, um, to get to Dorothy's today, um, you know, of course there's ice on the lakes up here. Uh, but during the summertime, if you wanted to go out to Dorothy's, you would put your boat in at Moose Lake and you would paddle um, up the Moose Chain, which is a series of three lakes. It's approximately seven miles, so roughly halfway. And then your first portage into um, non-motorized territory is the Birch Lake Portage. So once you cross that first portage, you are entering completely non-motorized area. 
And then it's another about seven and a half to eight miles um, over several more lakes and five additional portages to get into Knife Lake where Dorothy's Isle of Pines was. And Knife Lake is a very large lake. It's a border lake. So on the northern border is Canada. The southern border is the United States. And her islands were on the very west end. So when you're paddling in and you hit the Knife Lake portage and you touch Knife Lake water, if you look ahead to the east, you can actually see Dorothy's islands. They're about a mile paddle from that mm. portage. Um, so it's it's a lengthy trip um, nowadays if you were gonna go out there. And the closest town to Dorothy is Ely. So in addition to the 15 miles from her islands to Moose Lake, then there's an, about another 15 miles of road that you would drive to get into the town of Ely. Yeah. So the, so the 15 miles inside the boundary waters, just again, for, for listeners, like we're not talking by car, we're talking by <laughs> canoe. We're And can you remind us what portage means? So portage, um, sure. Portage or portage, uh, if you mm -hmm. want to be fancy, is uh, a derivative of French. And basically it, it describes a spit of land. So the boundary waters that specific area up here in northeastern Minnesota, the reason that canoeing is the most um, efficient mode of transportation mm -hmm. is because it's lots of water, lots of bodies of water, lakes, ponds, rivers, streams, wetlands, all different kinds of types of wet space. And so if you want to go somewhere and you're paddling a canoe to get from one lake to the next, you have to physically get out of your boat and haul everything from that one place to the next. Or if the only thing connecting two bodies of water is a very shallow stream or a very robust stream with white water and lots of boulders that's not safe to paddle, you have to portage. You have to portage your canoe and all of your packs across that land. And most of the portages that exist in the boundary waters um, were portages used by indigenous cultures, um, most recently Ojibwe, and then moving back to other um, tribal um, entities, as well as the early humans that existed on the landscape after the last glaciers left. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. This podcast is a passion project for me because I absolutely love adventure. And it's thanks to the effort of my residential real estate team here in Charlotte, North Carolina, that many of you know as the W Realty Group, that this podcast gets funded. This awesome group of people have unmatched levels of competence and caring for our clients. If you know of anyone looking to buy or sell a home, our team serves the Charlotte, North Carolina market, but we can also help you find an agent anywhere throughout the US or Canada through our highly connected network. When you support our real estate business, you are also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your referrals. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, the 15 miles, you know, and we're not even talking just 15 miles of paddling. We're talking, I think you said five portages to where she was living. And so you're talking about paddling, getting out of the kayak, getting all of your or the canoe, getting all of your gear out carrying the canoe across, coming back to get all of your gear and, and making the trips across the portage, however many times that you need to, to get all of your gear. And you've got to do that five times just to get one way 
and then the same thing coming back. So, so 15 miles, you know, for us that are used to cars might not sound like a big deal, but for somebody that's doing this by, by portage and by canoe, it's a lot. <laughs> it can be. And the beauty of, of canoeing in the boundary waters is that a lot of the lakes, um, the main routes you go, they're larger lakes. So a good chunk of that mileage, you're in a boat and you're paddling. Yeah. So you're not carrying anything. Um, but it really does make a difference in, you know, thinking ahead and deciding um, intentionally, what are you going to bring? What are you going to pack? What's necessary? What's not necessary? Because whatever you bring, ultimately, you're going to have to carry it several times. Yeah. So, so tell us about this woman, Dorothy, like, why did she choose this lifestyle? How did she end up living in the wilderness? So her, her story is very, it, it didn't take a straight route, you know, like many of our lives, um, especially a lot of the adventures, you know, that you talk to your life just doesn't start a path and then go there. There's all the forks in the roads. And so Dorothy had a very, um, different life from young women, um, her peers during her lifetime. She was born in 1907. So okay. the, the world she was born into very, very different from what we're used to today. Um, and she was born in Pennsylvania and over the course of, of many years ended up living in the Chicago area, South side of Chicago. Okay. Um, and one of the main reasons that she did end up there was that her mother died when she was young, when she was about seven years old. And her father, who worked on the railroad system as a police captain, was gone for long periods of time. And so until he remarried, Dorothy was living with different family members, living in orphanages with her siblings, five brothers and sisters, until they regained that kind of expected family unit, which included a mother figure. So okay. when, when her father remarried, they settled on the south side of Chicago. And Dorothy's dad was the main reason she made it up here. In his travels working on the railroad, he had come up to this area and the Midwestern um, Northwoods ecology and would take his vacations or take time off fishing and exploring. And he had been coming up to the Ely area and heading up to Basswood Lake. So Basswood, um, it's uh, closer to Ely. So if you go up that moose chain, you can either go east towards Dorothy's on Birch Lake, or you continue going north, and then the next portage is Basswood, okay. um, another border lake. And popular fishing space, lots of fishing resorts up there. Um, but he heard about this new fishing resort over on Knife Lake. And so in 1930, he decided he was going to take his annual fishing vacation to Knife Lake. Right before he and his group were about to head out, one of the members of their party had to back out. And this is the time when Dorothy was in nursing school and she was on summer break. And because she had already shown an interest in um, outdoors, sports, physical activity, Dorothy was invited to fill that empty spot. And that's how she ended up here in the Ely area back in 1930 was as a resorter. She was a tourist coming up to go fishing. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's how she ends up in Ely, but mm -hmm. you know, she becomes a recreational enthusiast, but there's a, you know, a big stretch. Like I'm a recreational enthusiast, but <laughs> I don't know that I'm ready to live in the boundary waters. Like what's, what's the next step in this journey? Yeah. So 
you know, a lot of, a lot of little things were happening. Um, during her time up here, it was also the depression. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of societal, um, restrictions that she encountered. For example, when she finished nursing school in 1931, she could pick up shifts teaching or at the teaching hospital where she graduated from, but there were no full-time positions available at the time. So that gave her flexibility to go on vacation again. So she came back in 1931 and befriended the resort owner. His name was Bill Berglund. And over several years started working for him. Now, part of that was based on the amazing experience she had on her first trip in 1930 as a guest. Yep. Doing all the fun guest things, exploring, fishing, you know, living without running water and electricity for two weeks. And it appealed to her. And we don't know directly from her what her, her feelings were on that, but from what people have said, friends of hers, it sounds like she might have had some kind of awakening or epiphany of, you know, she felt like she fit in up here. Mm, this was the, yeah. the place she wanted to be and how could she make that happen? And so as the years went on um, in the mid to late 30s, she started working for Bill basically full season. So from ice out in the spring to ice up in the fall. And Bill, who was about 31 years older than Dorothy, um, his health started to decline in the early 40s. So he asked Dorothy if in exchange for deeding her the property of the Isle of Pines Fishing Resort, would she stay year round on the island and also be his nurse? So she jumped at that and agreed to that. And in 1948, when Bill passed away, his family and Dorothy got together and transferred ownership. And so Dorothy became the sole owner proprietor of this wilderness fishing resort, 15 miles from the nearest road. Yeah, that's crazy. So can you uh, paint a picture for us on what this resort, because, you know, I mean, today's day and age, people hear the word resort. This is a very different resort than what people might be envisioning. So tell us about the resort. Yes. So today I think, you know, you would you definitely use the word rustic <laughs> and you would use the words off the grid. Um, so Knife Lake um, is a very clear, cold and deep lake. It is well known for lake trout fishing. Um, so this resort was positioned on a set of three islands, one very large island and two small satellite islands. And the islands uh, reflected the landscape around a boreal forest um, with red and white pine as the main um, tree species, you know, on this island. And it had several cabins and outbuildings. So Bill uh, purchased the land actually from the timber company that at the time had been harvesting in that area. And he built these cabins. So they are true log cabins. Um, they were built sometime in the in the late 1920s and one um the big island which is the main island had three cabins the point cabin which was on the point facing west the trapper cabin which was in the middle of the island and then the winter cabin which was on the west end um, sh in a sheltered bay um, and each of those cabins had kind of a living space uh, with a barrel stove to heat the cabin with wood 
and then a room of some sort or possibly two rooms separated by, you know, just a, a partial wall and um, not necessarily housekeeping cabins, although mm -hmm. they could have been used for housekeeping cabins, but you'd mm -hmm. have to haul your own water. Yep. Um, but comfortable spaces that if you were going to go on a fishing vacation, they had just what you needed. And then um, the resort would provide some of the basics, you know, maybe flour, sugar, salt, powdered milk, um, things that you would need if you were going to have a fish fry because you had a lot of fish. Yeah. And each cabin was connected with different pathways. So you're walking between all these cabins. And the, the large island was approximately 13 acres, 10 to 13 acres. Um, and then the two small islands were connected with little footbridges. And um, the other two small islands at that time um, just had some open spaces, you know, for enjoying the environment. Oh, man, I, I just I love this whole thing. Um, so I'm just imagining I'm looking at the kind of the timeline. Um, Dorothy's born in 1907. She essentially inherits the property in 1948. So she's 41 years old mm -hmm. and she lives there for the rest of her life. Mm hmm. And, you know, I heard you say, I, I, you're gonna have to tell me the terminology. I thought, I think I heard you say like before ice and after ice or something like that. I mean, we're in Minnesota, so the winters are cold and you, you know, she's living, what, what was the terminology, the ice terminology? Um, uh, ice up and ice out. Ice up and ice out. So, so she's there the whole time. Yep. And um, yeah, I mean, what, what was that like for her? So when she took over in 1948, she immediately was a journalist's dream come true because of exactly what you're saying. Yeah. She, you know, unmarried, educated woman, operating a wilderness resort. Oh my gosh. I, she, there's literally words in a print article stating, you know, how does she do all this man's work? Um, but they often romanticized her story also. They, mm -hmm. You know, they called her the loneliest woman in America and, and a hermit, which she was not a hermit by any means. But that romantic idea of her living in the wilderness didn't do it a super great job in the early days, like in the, especially the fifties in explaining that, you know, there are lots of people that live like this. There are, you know, early homesteaders, um, farmers, people, um, you know, that, that currently can't afford to have running water or electricity. When Dorothy was living out there, a lot of people were doing it. Um, but they made it sound exciting and, and romantic. And it was a lot of work, essentially. You know, you are hauling water every day. You are chopping wood and hauling wood every day. And this is year round. This isn't just in the wintertime. You, if you're going to prepare to live for a winter in Northeastern Minnesota um, environments, you start collecting your wood at least a year in advance. You know, you are not waiting until fall to start putting up wood. You are doing it every single day so you can stay ahead and have extra because when you live in a remote area like that, you have to plan for the worst case scenario. So having adequate wood for fire, for cooking, making sure that your water doesn't freeze in your cabin overnight, mm -hmm. um, making sure that your path to the outhouse <laughs> stays clear, mm -hmm. you know, um, all of those things that, that 
a lot of us take for granted today, you know, she had to consciously make a decision to get up and go out and do in order to, to sustain herself out there. Yeah. And, and I, when we visited the museum, I seem to recall, like there was a point at which, um, she was able to begin getting supplies either by seaplane or, um, like mechanical means. But I mean, for, for most of her life, she didn't have any of that, right? It was, it was canoeing yeah. and it varied. Um, so up until 1949, actually, um, she would fly in supplies by plane. And okay. there were, so, and this is another thing that a lot of folks unfamiliar with, with the history of, of Northeastern Minnesota, um, before the Boundary Waters existed, there were tons of resorts in the area. Um, it was called the Superior Roadless Area. And they all would at some point or another employ a plane to haul in heavy supplies or guests would hire a, a plane taxi to take them into their fishing resort. Um, so the, the planes were the most efficient in terms of, you know, you're hauling in gasoline mm -hmm. for boats, uh, those heavy staples that I had mentioned before, you know, laundry detergent to wash, yep. wash your, your resort beds. Um, but then in 1949, uh, President Truman issued an executive order. It still stands today that there are no flights below 4,000 feet mm. um, unless it was by a, a federal agency. And so then Dorothy had to really think about what she was bringing in and what was necessary, what was a bonus, you know, how, what could she do um, to minimize the amount of work it would take her and or friends and relatives that were helping her. Um, so at this time, you know, she's got family that's coming to stay with her and help her. Um, there are different outfitters and game wardens and forest rangers that are coming up that area that might bring her her mail or bring her a box from the grocery store. Um, so she was really had to be conscious of, of what she was asking people to carry. And, um, you know, up until snowmobiles were invented, she had to portage it all just like everybody else. Yep. Um, you know, and if she had some folks in the wintertime that, that could dog sled stuff up, that was a bonus. Um, but yeah, it, it was a lot of work getting supplies in there. Yeah. She was a tough cookie. And, and as you <laughs> said, I mean, such an unbelievable role model to women, mm -hmm. right. And for women. Um, I wonder, I remember, I don't remember them specifically, and I'm hoping that, she, that you will, like when I was at the museum, I remember a couple of fun little anecdotes about, you know, people looking at this woman thinking like, oh, who, who is she? And then, and then her kind of showing them up. Do you, do you remember a couple of those anecdotes you might be able to share? Yes. I just shared this one the other day. <laughs> um, so Dorothy was, those that knew Dorothy knew that she was incredibly strong and, and very capable, um, but also modest, you know, it's not like she was flashy and showed it off, but she also had a sense of humor. And there is one story and actually, um, it's relayed by Bob Carey in his book, Root Beer Lady, which he wrote about Dorothy after she'd passed. Um, and it's telling a story of when she was coming back from town, she had motored up the moose chain and was at the birch lake portage it's a very short portage the first portage you come to it's maybe 15 rods um and a rod is like 16 ish feet okay. um and 
she's getting unloading her square stern canoe and she has two huge you know duluth style packs and um some other things you know her gas can because she um, throughout her life there she was allowed to use a um, small horse motor for her square stern canoe and at the same time a group of young men were coming across in the opposite direction they were coming out of the boundary waters and um they're watching her unload and at this time you know she has gray hair so she visibly looks a little older and she's a little weathered from her life in the wilderness and one of the young men approaches and says oh you know this is a lot may we provide you a hand and they referred to her in what bob says as mother which at the time was kind of a, a generational term for respect for an older woman. Okay. And Dorothy took issue with that. <laughs> and she said, sure, hold on. And she throws one of the packs on her back, the other one on her front, loads up her square stern canoe on her shoulders and grabs her motor. And as she's walking away, says, sure, can one of you grab my gas can? <laughs> and just keeps walking and it's it's one of those stories where you we know that it happened we don't know you know if that's exactly how it happened um but there's a lot of people that have mentioned you know they went to visit dorothy and they approached to get a root beer and there she was chopping wood at 73 years old you know which isn't unheard of but it's sometimes something unexpected um, and so she definitely made an impression on a lot of people in that yeah. way. Yeah, she sure did. What an incredible woman. So you just talked about the root beer people would approach. Let, let's talk about the root beer. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, it's kind of interesting because she goes out there, like presumably, you know, to live in the wild, she's living alone, but yet like this whole thing with the root beer is this way to connect with people out in the wilderness. Like, mm -hmm. What, what, what was this all about, this whole root beer thing? Well, in the early days, um, so it was always a fishing resort. So she lived there, you know, independently. Yeah. But she was never physically alone uh -huh. um, unless it was during the ice up or the ice out, which yeah. depending on the time, you know, what kind of year we're having up here, it could be, you know, a two to three week long period where the ice just isn't safe. And so those were the really the only times where she had nobody visiting gotcha. because okay. they couldn't get there. Um, but she had visitors. So her resort operated, you know, several months out of the year. So she always had people with her all summer long. And then once winter was by, she had people stopping by that were going up to go ice fishing or um, when snowmobiles were available, snowmobiling across um, just to go visit her. So the root beer... Um, came into play after 1949 with the flight ban. So that root beer in glass bottles and in wooden crates was one of the items she cut from her shopping list because it was just too heavy to portage okay. in and she mm -hmm. wasn't going to ask anybody else to do it. The official cutoff for not getting supplies by plane actually happened in 1952. Because after the 49 law, two pilots in the Ely area um, kept flying. They were not happy with the decision. They thought, you know, it was their way to protest it. And this went on 
until 1952 and one of the pilots was caught and they mm -hmm. and the authorities confiscated his plane. And so officially 1952 is when Dorothy had no, you know, tasty sweet beverage for her resort guests, Got it. but she had tons of empty bottles. So she found a basic root beer recipe and reused those bottles, bought herself a bottle capper and bottle caps and started making homemade root beer so that she could sell it or have it for her resort guests. And root beer um, originated in the Americas. It's it originated from an indigenous tea mm -hmm. and began, you know, the whole um, brew process, mostly when European settlers brought over their knowledge of fermenting, especially fermenting beer and wine. Um, and of course, they fermented root beer and got root you know, the root beer we know today has evolved from that. So homemade, homemade root beer and brewing root beer at home is a very American thing. And it's very likely that it's something that Dorothy had done before growing up. Um, and so she started doing this and very quickly word got out that, you know, not only is this an unmarried, educated woman operating a resort on her own, now she's making root beer from lake water. Um, and so the word of this spread because up until this point, she had a revolving door of journalists coming up because she was so novel. It was just, you know, women didn't do this yeah. and it was such a, a curiosity. So she had a lot of print and then root beer got added on top of it. And it was just kind of like the cherry, you know, it was just over the top. So word of Dorothy and Dorothy making root beer soon became the root beer lady and the visitation to her increased, not just from resort guests, but now you have people passing by, just stopping by because she's making root beer and it's something they have to see for themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's such a great story. Just, and you know, this, this visual of being out in the middle of, I think you said something like a million acres. I mean, just this wilderness mm -hmm. and you can stop by and see Dorothy and, and get a root beer, get a homemade yeah. root beer. And um, so she developed a reputation and she became, you know, locally famous and, and, mm -hmm. and so well known and, and loved Yeah, so much so that uh, I believe when I came to the museum, um, there were some regulations that were put into place. And you talked about it in the, in the beginning where they were trying to create something to where you could no longer live in the boundary waters. Can you, can you get into that and how that affected Dorothy? Yeah. So most people that kind of follow the boundary waters in, in like a greater detail um, are familiar with the wilderness act of 1964. Okay. So that, um, that act passed by Congress basically created the Boundary Waters. That's the whole reason we have the Boundary Waters today. And it's it's not a thing that happens overnight. You know, anytime you're creating a new public land area, whether it's a national monument or a national park or a wilderness, there's a lot of, of work that has to go into this. And usually there's a lot of privately held property um, that has to be addressed in some way. And so the process for creating the Boundary Waters, um, a big milestone happened in 1948, right when Dorothy took over. And so there's this whole parallel timeline 
of Dorothy's life and her evolution as the Ripper Lady and how the Boundary Waters came to be um, a designated wilderness space. And mm -hmm. so private land was being purchased by the federal government um, right when Dorothy took over and different um, rules and guidelines were being um, you know, written and lawmakers were talking about how they could make this space. And there were other acts that were brought forth to Congress, but the one in 1964 is the one that had it all. It had everything they needed to legally establish the Boundary Waters and manage it and enforce all of these new rules and guidelines that, that were put in place. And for Dorothy, and there still were other people um, in the area during this time, they were being told, like, this is going to happen. This is coming down the line. Um, you should be aware. We urge you to sell your property to the federal government. And Dorothy was one of the few that refused. She had no interest in selling. She had no interest in moving back to town or back to Chicago. She had established herself um, and she was fulfilled and successful. And so um, when the Wilderness Act passed in 64, um, the federal government, specifically the Forest Service, uh, which is the entity that's managing wilderness areas, had to go to Dorothy and say, it's too late. You know, we gave you as much warning as we could. And now this is law. And we are bound by this law to condemn your property and basically kick you off your land. Mm -hmm. And for Dorothy, having all of this previous publicity leading up to 1964, without intentionally using it as leverage, she had a lot of le leverage. Mm -hmm. And people that were close to her started using it for her. And so one of her friends, Bob Carey, who I mentioned wrote the book about her, um, he had been a newspaper editor. He started a newspaper here in Ely. He wrote an editorial that was just scathing. Like it really was hard on the Forest Service and blamed the Forest Service for picking on, you know, the little, little guy trying to just live their life. Um, and it was very inflammatory, um, which was not uncommon for, for publications at the time. Yep. Um, but he sent that down to his colleagues at the Chicago paper he worked at. They published it and it went on the National Newswire. And for the mid-1960s, it went viral. And it was published in papers across the country and resulted in this huge outcry from the public after reading the story of essentially little old lady Dorothy and the big bad federal government. Um, and of course, that's not, that's not how, you know, the, the forest service was working, yeah. you know, just like any kind of business, you know, the, the people that are doing the work aren't trying to be mean. <laughs> they're just yep. being doing what they're told to do. And, but what that did was it, um, really inspired people to write letters and speak out. And so the Forest Service received thousands of letters from the public urging them to um, compromise with Dorothy, allow her to stay, some kind of consideration. And ultimately, um, it was it was decided that they would grant her a temporary lease of her property. Uh, which is not uncommon for this type of process. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of, of what's called lifetime leases or hundred year leases that if you have a family property and, you know, the government wants to, to build a new national forest and you happen to be right in the middle of it, you know, there's, there's ways to get around um, allowing those private land holdings. But with the wilderness, it was really unique because in the Wilderness Act, it, it explicitly states you can't live there. Um, so what they did was they, they granted her this temporary lease and she was going to be allowed to stay there until 1975. And that number was chosen because the Forest Service believed that at the time when she would be in her mid-60s, she would be ready to go move into town and have running water and electricity. So it was it was by no discussion between them and Dorothy. Um, but of course, she's already the Rapier Lady. She's already uh, the Nightingale of the Wilderness, creating you know a place for people to go to get emergency medical care with her nursing skills. She's a hostess and helping people that get into tight spots um, in the wilderness. So her visitation just multiplied and, and increased exponentially from there because now she had this pre-fame of pre-boundary waters. And now you have this post-fame of this is the lady that the big uproar about the wilderness was. And now people know what the boundary waters even is yeah, and who this lady is. So more and more visitors and this just kind of snowballed. So in the early seventies, the forest service was trying to figure out a way to allow her to stay. And so they worked with legislators um, and it actually was uh, brought to Congress and a, a representative from Indiana introduced a bill for the release relief of Dorothy Moulter. Um, it was never passed. It was more a ceremonial gesture of support. Um, but what the Forest Service was able to do was make her a volunteer in service. So as a resident of the Boundary Waters, she worked for the Forest Service. And in addition to providing medical care for those in need, she also monitored campsites and monitored traffic. And if anybody had an emergency that required assistance, she would, had a way to, to communicate with a radio. Um, so she was granted lifetime tenancy in 1972. In 1972. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and she stays until 1986. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So, so yep. can you, can you complete the picture for us? And, and yeah. Yeah. So there's another big piece of legislation that happened in 1978 is the Boundary Waters Act. And it was kind of an addendum to the Wilderness Act, but specific mm -hmm. to the Boundary Waters. And what that did was it fully eliminated motor traffic in the Boundary Waters. So now there are only a handful of border lakes um, that kind of straddle um, boundary waters, non-boundary waters. And those lakes allow motors up to, you know, like 25 horsepower. Mm -hmm. But in the interior, like where Dorothy was, motors were banned. So being a volunteer in service, she was allowed her motor um, for supplies and emergencies. But it really kind of, limited everybody else's ability to come and visit her. The 78 Act also had a um, phasing out process for snowmobiles. So snowmobiles were allowed, but then by the January 1st, 1984, that was 
the end. No more snowmobiles oh, okay. in the wintertime. So up until then, Dorothy continued to have visitors year round, like all the time. There yeah. was very few days in the year she didn't have anybody stopping by to check on her, to visit her, to get a cup of coffee. Um, but after January of 84, her winters became a little bit more isolated. Yeah. Because now if you wanted to go see her, it was, you know, an eight to 12 hour snowshoe to get up mm -hmm. there, um, a few hours for dog sled. But if you don't have dog sled, you know, a dog sled and the yeah. dogs to go with it. And if you're physically not able to ski or snowshoe, you know, 13 miles on the winter trails, yep. that leaves a lot of time. Um, and so it was in December of 1986 the Forest Service um, was unable to to reach Dorothy via the two-way radio. And they it wasn't unusual. You know, she might have been out hauling wood or getting water. So they waited till the next day and they hadn't heard from her. And that was a Friday. So they said, well, if we don't get in touch with her on Monday morning, we're going to go check on her. And Monday morning rolled around, as did a snowstorm. Still hadn't heard from her. So once the snowstorm had cleared and the skies were suitable for low flights, uh, they went out to see how she was doing. And as they came up and could see her islands on the horizon, when they didn't see smoke coming from her chimney, they knew that something had happened to her. Yeah. And so this yeah. was December 18th. And okay. they uh, landed on the ice and walked up and found that she had died um, hauling wood into her cabin. Hauling wood into the cabin. Mm -hmm. What an unbelievable woman. So yeah. strong. Such an incredible inspiration. Mm -hmm. So what happened to the resort and the cabins and in, you know, in the midst of all the, the acts that were in place and, you know, the, her land lease and, and all that, mm -hmm. what, what happened afterwards? So legally, um, the Forest Service owned her land. So mm -hmm. back in 65, when they came to this mm -hmm. agreement, um, she sold the land. So the Forest Service owned it under the law of the Wilderness Act. They now had to return it to a natural setting. So that meant eliminating all the signs of human living there. A few days before... Uh, the Forest Service was about to go up and start burning the cabins and pulling out what wasn't going to burn. A group of friends that had had a conversation at one of her memorial services asked if they could salvage um, whatever they could. So um, this group of friends uh, had, had also created or held a memorial service at her islands on January 10th. So Dorothy's family, of course, took her down to Chicago. They had a formal service and she's buried out in Pennsylvania. Her wish was to be buried next to her mother. Okay. So she's in Arnold um, New Kensington Cemetery out in Pennsylvania, if anybody's out there. Okay. Um, and they spelled boundary wrong on her headstone. <laughs> so a little, little uh, fun fact for you. There you go. Um, but of course, people here in Ely, even in 1986, to drive from Ely down to even Minneapolis was a full day event. So a very few people that knew her well up here could go to her service. So mm -hmm. these friends coordinated a service out at the Isle of Pines and the Forest Service granted them permission for a one day motor permit so people could snowmobile up. 
and between 500 and a thousand people came to show their respects. And the same group of people thought, Hey, there's so much history here. A lot of our history doesn't stay alive in the eyes of young people. And Dorothy's story is, is so inspiring as well as historic. We want this to be remembered. So the Forest Service said, yes, you can salvage whatever you want. Because at this point, the family had been there. Um, and now the Forest Service has taken control. And it's just going to be burned anyway. So they gave them permission, but said, you have to do it by non-motorized means. So this group coordinated a 100% volunteer effort using sled dogs from the Voyager Outward Bound School here in Ely and Sommer's Canoe Base, which is now known as Northern Tier High Adventure Base for Boy Scouts, um, worked and used equipment to go up to the Isle of Pines every weekend from the end of January to the middle of March and haul down what they could. In March, there was a spring thaw, which isn't unusual, but this one was very, very warm, over 45 degree temps during the day. So the snow started melting, the portages became a muddy mess, and this group could not get the last bits of the cabins out. And so they went to the Forest Service. They were coordinating, trying to figure out how are they going to get these cabins that were dismantled, um, so the logs. They had talked about hiring a helicopter crew (laughs) to get all this stuff out. And the Forest Service said, hey, we'll give you three days. You can use ATVs and snowmobiles. And after these three days, that's that's it. You get what you get and then you're done. And they were able to get the remaining logs for the cabins and get them out of the boundary waters. And so after, you know, working with the city of Ely, the Ely Chamber of Commerce, um, local businesses and construction companies and a huge group of volunteers, they were able to reassemble two of Dorothy's cabins, the winter cabin and the point cabin here at the museum and open as the Dorothy Moulter Museum on Dorothy's birthday on May 6th in 1993. And so this year in 2023, we celebrate our 30th anniversary of existing. Yay. It's the 30th anniversary this year. That is so cool that we're having this conversation on your 30th anniversary. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. And, 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 uh, you know, of course, this is how I became familiar with it because we did come to the museum mm-hmm. and got to see with my own eyes, these cabins that had been put back together piece by piece. If I remember correctly, like each piece was numbered. Mm-hmm. So they kind of knew how to put it back together, the, exactly how it was on the Isle of Pines. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it's really an incredible experience. And at the museum, you guys get to talk all about the root beer recipe and, and you kind of um, talk about the root beer experience that you got there. So historically, we have offered root beer making classes. Yeah. Um, COVID kind of put a, a dent in that and we uh-huh. haven't returned to doing it. But um, until we can get back to doing that, we offer um, root beer kits with Dorothy's recipe in them. Um, so basically the kit comes with everything you need except sugar and water. Mm. Um, so the yeast and the root beer flavoring and the recipe with the quantities in it, um, is all included as well as a little background on Dorothy's root beer. 
Um, and then we, of course, have our own root beer product, uh, Dorothy's Isle of Pines root beer, which is a commercial product that we um, own and we contract a brewer to produce for us because we don't have our own brewery yet. Um, but it's based on Dorothy's best bottle of root beer. Um, and so that product you can get without having to wait for it to ferment. It's ready to go ice cold here at the museum. Yeah. It, it's fun to make root beer. My family, we had a blast. It was delicious. We actually took it with us to Voyagers, which you said was it's next to the Boundary Waters, and we yeah. enjoyed cold root beer out there. It was an unbelievable experience, and I think anybody listening that's interested in visiting the Boundary Waters absolutely has to come see you at the Dorothy Moulter Museum. Um, it's just such an amazing experience, and she is such an inspiration. What a strong woman. I have to ask that this podcast, we talk a lot about the voice inside that calls us to adventure. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, I know, I know we have to speculate cause we'll never know for sure, but what do you think it was? You, you actually mentioned that, that, that there's, um, been discussion that she had an awakening, um, mm -hmm. when she went out to the boundary waters. Do you, do you have any thoughts on kind of what motivated her and, you know, in, in what ways she felt that call to adventure? Yeah. You know, for me personally, when I think about, you know, what could impact somebody that much to make mm -hmm. them want to shift their entire life? And um, I had a similar experience. Um, I'm not from Ely. I moved mm -hmm. up to Ely 20 years ago, but, but my experience seem to parallel what I know of Dorothy's. And for her, when she first got to the Isle of Pines, you know, she had lived in a very urban area for her entire life. You know, out in Pennsylvania, it was, it was very industrialized, um, lived in, in large cities as they moved west. And so this was really her first opportunity to be in an environment where the noise, the daily hum of human activity was not really there. And the, the natural setting was alive. And one of, of the experiences that she had when she got to the Isle of Pines, so after paddling that whole 15 miles to get out there, they check into a cabin and there's a chipmunk in the cabin and it's, you know, it's harmless. It's not doing anything, but it's there. And she goes out to tell Bill, the owner, and he's like, well, you're in the woods now, basically, <laughs> you know, that's going to happen. Um, just don't leave any food out and you won't have any problems. And he said, but watch this. And he pulls a biscuit out of his pocket and holds it up. And a gray jay comes and lands on his hand and starts eating out of his hand. And as she's walking around this island, which isn't really big. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, yeah. you know, maybe 10 to 13 acres, she sees a mink, which is a type of weasel, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, semi-aquatic. It eats a lot of aquatic stuff. She sees this little weasel hunting on the shoreline. She sees a kingfisher, which is a type of bird that, that dives and catches minnows. Um, she sees it in a tree and watches it dive for food. She, Here's the slap of a beaver tail on the water as she comes around the corner and startles it. And she hears the call of a loon, which of course is the, the state bird here in Minnesota. Um, so I put myself in her shoes and I think about not only are you in this amazing, beautiful environment that is pure wilderness. Now you have these 
wildlife encounters that you would never have back home, that yeah. there aren't a lot of places right now where you could have those experiences. Um, and so I think it was kind of this, this first trip up there just awakened an awareness in her that, that this place exists and yeah. her desire to continue to learn more about it. Yeah. Well, and, and you have your own story um, as an adventurer. You have an incredible background in studying wildlife and working in wildlife. And maybe as a teaser here, you know, we might just have to have you back on for another episode to talk about your experiences working with wildlife, because that's pretty epic as well. But uh, as we kind of wrap up here, um, I, I would love to just get your thoughts on what you think that people should take away from Dory's story, from Dorothy's story, and in particular, women and even, you know, even girls that maybe have heard her story and 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 how Dorothy can inspire them. Yeah. Um, and and for me, that's one of the more important messages that I like to share with people because you know, Dorothy's story is really cool. She had these amazing adventures and just this unorthodox life, but mm -hmm. it's a, it's an inspirational story. And she's a role model in ways that, um, aren't as apparent if, you know, you're not kind of thinking about it at a, at a deeper level. And one of them is, you know, being born in 1907 and living to 1986, there are so many societal changes that occurred in her lifetime. And she was there for all of these things. And a lot of them had to do with gender roles, um, specifically heteronormative gender mm -hmm. roles, you know, those little boxes that we put people in, you know, as you're a male, you're a female, and this is what you can and can't do. Um, and she kind of ignored a lot of those. And she was criticized. You know, we don't often talk about um, some of those interpersonal challenges that she experienced with other community members. You know, there were rumors about, you know, why is she doing this? And something must be wrong with her. She's not right. Or, you know, the choices that she made were looked down upon because they weren't what a respectable, unmarried young woman should do. And so when I think about how she inspires me and how she can inspire others, I think about, you know, she lived through so many societal changes with grace and patience and compassion, because even though people, you know, essentially talk trash about her behind her back, she was very likely well aware of it. Um, but she handled it with empathy, you know, and, she didn't badmouth people. She didn't say mean things about people. And it's possible to do that. Um, but then also stand up for yourself, yeah. you know? Um, and one of the examples that I, I chuckle at is when those journalists were coming up and, and constantly interviewing her um, in the late forties, early fifties, one of the questions they always had was, well, why aren't you married yet? And of course, being married is a personal choice. And mm -hmm. it, it's nobody's business. And, you know, but there's all sorts of expectations. There's a lot of baggage with it. And she finally said, well, 
When I find a man who can chop more wood, portage heavier loads, or catch more fish, I'll marry him. And she mm. never got married. <laughs> you know, she got Thank around you. that that really inappropriate personal question um, with a joke, basically, kind of turning it back on them. Like, well, why do you care? And why should it matter? Yep, absolutely you know? brilliant. And so she just she just holds a lot of, of that strength and perseverance um, that I think people can draw from and apply it to their own lives. Absolutely brilliant. What an amazing woman. And I suspect that at some point, Hollywood is going to pick up on this and make a movie about Dorothy Moulter. And I ask everybody that comes on this podcast, and I'm going to ask you, who do you think is going to be the Hollywood actress that plays Dorothy Moulter when they make this movie? So I thought way more about this than I thought I would. And um, immediately two people floated up to the surface. Um, one is Helen Mirren. Yeah. Um, specifically because of her role in 1923 right now. Mm, yeah. Um, the other is Jessica Lange. Nice. Um, because she's feisty and she's from Minnesota. Um, but an interesting thought I had was julia roberts oh here is why um i think julia roberts has strong features like dorothy did mm -hmm. um and she has such a wide range of acting um abilities but dorothy and julia actually met in 1984 when julia roberts was on a youth group camping trip in the boundary waters and we have a picture of them together. That's right. I remember seeing <laughs> that picture at the museum. That was so cool. Yeah. And that. That it's like she has that first person experience. She actually met Dorothy and can draw from that experience. They need to make that movie. What do you think <laughs> the movie, what's the movie going to be called? Oh my gosh. That one's a tough one. You know, living in the Boundary Waters is kind of cliche. It just it sounds like what you would expect. So I, I had a hard time. I don't know. I think, um, you know, you could go down the route of the root beer lady of knife Lake, yeah. which is going to get more name recognition, Yeah. but she's so much more than that. Yeah. Um, so it'd be nice to have her name in it, you know, Dorothy of knife Lake or Dorothy of the North woods or that's not my strong suit. I'll, I, I'll uh, cast it. I just I'm, won't I'm name still it. Gonna, I'm going to watch this movie. Any of those actresses, but and <laughs> Julia Roberts, Dorothy Moulter, the root beer lady. I mean, such an inspiration and it, for listeners. The Boundary Waters is such a beautiful place. If you're looking for adventure, it's an incredible place to go um, with your family, by yourself. You know, it's, it's an unbelievable experience. And when you go, please stop by the Dorothy Moulter Museum to see Jess and, and see the cabins and how they've been rebuilt and, and enjoy some root beer. And uh, so for those listening, I hope that you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope that Dorothy Moulter's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. Jess, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been amazing. Thank you so much.